Happy Friday, everybody. Along with Adrian Broadus, I'm Steve Kaplowitz here on Sports Talk. we got a lot to cover on the show today. Two and a half hours. Hags will be dropping in with uh, a little uh, story time at 6.15. We're going to talk to the author of the new book, 17-0, and 0, The 72 Dolphins. Marshall John Fisher is going to be with us. Also, I'm going to talk about what my... Uh, 31st reunion has been like. They've been combining our class of 91 with 92. So last night I went out to Asatunas, saw a bunch of people that I haven't seen in the last 10, 20 years. So I'll get to that and uh, and talk a little uh, talk a little bit about what reunions are like. But before we do all that, we're going to reunite with Mad Friars because John Conniff is here with us in our Lubingo studios. We only have John for about 15 minutes, so I want to really devote the first part of the show to him, especially after yesterday's tweet from Lucy's that kind of went uh, viral a little bit. Everybody saw those the uh, shot of the tacos Antonio, and they all got excited. John, good to see you, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I, I think. Uh it's weird. San Diego loves looking at Mexican food, and I particularly like looking at Mexican food since I live on the East Coast right now, but you can totally understand that. You made a sportscaster in San Diego jealous, a guy from, I guess, the Philadelphia area who you tagged on there, and he saw that photo of the uh, tacos, and I, and I think you made him hungry. Yeah, Darnay is uh, from Philadelphia. He's in San Diego. He's with Channel 39. I've gone on his podcast with him and Derek uh, Turgeson a couple times. Yeah, Darnay loves food. Every time I tell him I'm going to El Paso, he wants to talk about L&J Cafe, and so uh, I want to give him a new thing to be envious of, and uh, Lucy's accomplished that last year. It's a great pick by both you and Adrian, so you guys deserve credit for that. Thank you. Well, look, uh, we ate the tacos. You saw Adrian's machaca plate, so yeah. now at least you know if you want to go back what you got to have the next time. Oh, I definitely am going to go back before I go home, yeah. And you've already had a plate of chilaquiles this morning, I heard, for breakfast. Yeah, that filled me up, and then I had to kind of ease up so I wouldn't come back to D.C. at 400 pounds. Had a had some fruit and a nice. light sandwich. So uh, hopefully uh, I'll, I'll be ready to go for tomorrow. Adrian, this man knows what he's doing when he gets to El Paso. Yeah, it's like he gets it from the best sources there are about what food. And look at him. He's got he's got some coffee with him on, on the other side, Steve. So he's also got coffee as well, which I, I love. Yeah, I yeah, got a little bit of Dutch Brothers. Had to, had to wake up after that early flight from D.C. and uh, hey, a late way, night watching the Chihuahuas. What's the deal with Dutch Brothers? Why is there always a line of like 20 cars everywhere in El Paso? Where there's, where, where there's what, what is it with this place? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I was, uh, was I wanted to make sure. I had a little bit of extra time. There wasn't a, a rush because I think I still get that from my dad when I yeah. he said come by. I wanted to make sure I was on time. Because uh, it was a major conflict with my parents. My dad, if you were going somewhere at 3 o'clock, you were there at 2.55 was late. With my mother, 3 o'clock was more like a concept. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and, and between those two, you had to, there had to be a compromise in between, right? Yeah, well, it was pretty much going with what the old man said. So I yeah. make sure I'm always here uh, early, and it was nice enough for you guys to invite me on. And so uh, it's always fun to talk baseball. You wrote on the website, Chihuahuas Bite Back 7-6. That's uh, the latest up at madfriars.com. Right. Uh, you've got also the Daily Farm Reports, which are up every day, Q&As. Yes. You're, you're busy. So when you get here, and, and, and people, I guess, that listen to the show a week and a half ago, you were on with me for about 40 minutes on the phones right. uh, talking about your trip. But now that you're here, uh, you get the opportunity to not only watch games, but you also get a chance to interview different people that you're going to get to profile on the website at madfriars.com. Right. That's why I'm cutting out of here a little early because you kind of got to catch these guys uh, between BP and before the game. So yesterday, uh, with about four hours of sleep, I did talk to Alec Jacoby, who's a relief pitcher who we can talk about. He's an interesting guy because he was a 16th-round pick. Uh, in this year's draft, he's already in AAA. And the thing about him, people should watch him because 
I think Alec tops out at about 86 with a fastball. Wow. And now, of course, this will look is great. Is he a lefty? No, he's a righty. It's look good on the radio because everybody can see me. But you know, he has a sidearm rele- release points. And mm-hmm. when we get a is Jorge Sosago. It's like what? submarine style? No, like straight. Okay. It's out there. And this thing, if you're a right-handed hitter, it starts behind your back. Yeah. And so even 87 miles an hour is pretty good. He's got a good changeup, good slider with a lot of horizontal movement. And he's a fun guy to watch because you can't see the ball really. And so, yeah, normal kid, talk to him. Fun guy. Hopefully we'll interview up in a little bit. And uh, some guys I want to try to get uh, I'll get this weekend, hopefully, be you know, like Taylor Colway, Brett Sullivan, and you know maybe Jose Castillo, who I talked a lot about in the inter- in, uh, art game, game piece. Have you, already, have you already had a chance to meet uh, Eggy uh, Rosario? I've met him a few times. Eggy's, Eggy's a fun guy. He's got a really good sense of humor. I'll probably try that interview half in Spanish, half in English, so we'll see how well oh, that that's goes. Good. Good, good luck with that one. Uh, meanwhile, you know, this team won yesterday, 7-6. Yeah. They were down early on, and uh, it's it's been a fun season. I think yesterday is kind of uh, in a nutshell sums up what the uh, Chihuahuas have been like, right? Yeah, you know it, it was weird. They were I think I wrote they were down they were down four nothing after the first five batters, but you know it, it's kind of El Paso and it's the Pacific Coast League, so anything can really happen. But I do think in places like San Diego uh, and other places, it gets a little bit overblown about how good a place it is to hit because a lot of these guys are really good. And I think we talked about this at lunch and on the radio last time. Guys like Estuary Ruiz, he made major decisions, major improvements on the swing decisions. I mean, that's going to play whether or not you're at altitude or not. And so, I mean, you have to kind of go a little bit beyond the stats. you got to kind of look at the walk rates, strikeout rates, and things like that. You're here through the weekend, correct? Correct. Are you tempted to buy a ticket to each game since you could be the four millionth fan through the uh, gates at Southwest <laughs> University Park? I think that should go to someone who's uh, in El Paso who supports the team a lot more. I mean, I, I think the one thing I really enjoy about coming to El Paso, and I think uh, we talked about this, is you know I've driven past here going back east to D.C. and I wasn't really that crazy when the Padres put the AAA team, and I was wrong. I mean, I have absolutely loved every trip I've come to El Paso. I think the people are so polite and nice. And you guys always bribe me with the food. I don't think I've had a bad meal since I've been here either. I like that, too. Uh, by the way, if I'm looking right now at uh, Alec Jacobs' career stats, they're ridiculous. They like, are. His, his career ERA is 0.63. His career, uh, his ERA with the Chihuahuas right now, um, I, I guess, uh, or this season in, in, in minor league baseball, 0.96. So this is a guy that has microscopic um, earn run average. He doesn't, uh, he strikes a ton of guys out. He came from Gonzaga. You said it, 16th round pick last year. Yeah. He was the 490th player chosen. He's already in AAA. He has video game numbers. And would you be surprised if he ends up in San Diego this year? He could, but the the thing that we kind of got to be careful about is what makes one. If you ever get a chance to watch him warm up in his pregame stretching routine, my arm hurt just looking at that. He can take his arm and pretty much touch his opposite shoulder all the way back, and guys like that. The ball is really tough to pick up, and there's a lot of horizontal movement. Maybe some big league hitters can can pick up on that. But then again, you know, there's opinions, and then there's facts. And yeah. what you just delivered was a fact. Right. So regardless of what I may or may not think, he's kind of earning his opportunity to get a shot. And, yeah. you know, when you're putting up numbers like this in El Paso, along with Jose Castillo, you know, if, you're, if we're going to talk about how e- easy, I guess, this place is to hit, which I don't 
fully buy buy off on. Then we also got to go the opposite way and talk about when someone's really putting up numbers on pitching wise, that should really impress you. So he didn't give up a run last year. No. Now he only played in thirteen games, but in thirteen games he had a zero point zero ERA with uh, rookie ball and A ball. This year doesn't give up a run in the Midwest League in four games. Goes up to Double A and gives up uh, um, a whopping one point four yeah. ERA. And now here he is, and he's had three starts and has been has been really good. Only give up one hit so far in two and two thirds innings. It's a fun guy to talk about because these are the stories that for you, Mad Friars, is what it's all about. Yeah, you know we like talk. Those, there's like two levels always of, of talking about the minor Lakers is, you know, you talk about guys who are 16th round pick coming up is a great story. Like kind of what we talked about the last time was Matthew Batten, mm-hmm. Taylor Colway. Then there's also guys we talk about who are really high end prospects, kind of like Estuary Ruiz was. And, you know, we've talked about James Wood a number of times, even though he hasn't been here in El Paso That's yet. That's right. But you're waiting and you're ready. So uh, those guys are great. And kind of when you go back to Alec, the organization is kind of doing what we're just talking about. Okay, well, let's see if other guys can pick up where he's hitting. And right now, no. Speaking of uh, James Wood, last night in Lake Elsinore, which is a ball for the Padres, you had a rehabbing Jerickson Profar, a rehabbing Will Myers, yeah. and uh, you also had Wood. So you had one, two, three in the lineup, and it was like Profar, Myers, and Wood. And I'm thinking to myself, that's that's you know that's kind of fun. It, it's fun, and it's also the thing I think both of us say those guys are great, but I kind of want to look at Big James. Yeah. And uh, the thing about Big James, if you get a chance, go on MILB TV and watch him. He fills out about the whole batting, batter's box. He doesn't really even take a step, and he's hitting just rockets off the wall. I mean, he might break that stadium before he's done done with it. I mean, he's huge. Now, uh, for you on this trip, let's talk. You mentioned some of the players you're going to be talking to. I'm going to try to talk to you. Right. Yeah. So uh, how does that process work? Do you try to work it out with Tim uh, before you get here and give him a list of names? Or do you just go and just try to approach guys and see if they're willing to spend some time talking to you? A little both. You know, I, I think I'll try to talk some some of those guys before they come off the field after BP and getting their workouts done. You always make sure the manager knows what you're doing and you try not to interfere with anything they're going on. A lot of the players surprise, follow our site, and they, they know what we do. And, you know, we try to – our main goal is if you're watching a Padre game, and, like, we just talked about this. If we have an interview coming up with Alec Jacob, Jacoby and you're going, who is this? And you can click on our site. You're going to find out, you know, what he throws, where he's from, what he's trying to do out there, and how he's trying to improve. And that's kind of what the goal is. So to give everybody that's really a fan, a big fan of the Padres yeah. and the Chihuahuas, or every level, a chance to learn a little bit more about every player. Yeah, the thing, I think, again, we, we chatted about this. I think we look at uh, James Wood as, as a great example. Like if We're talking about how great he is and all this. So if someone looks, go, why was he picked in the second round? So we had a, about interviews with – J.J. Cooper, Baseball America, Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline, Keith Loft, Athletic. And they all said the same thing, was he has a real high upside. He struck out a lot as a high school player with some questions about his hit tools. So if you followed our site, then you read about the daily reports. Then we can sum it up in the season. Hey, you hit 370 with a 450 on base and power. Well, the main thing is, okay, he struck out about 31%. He's going to need to improve that. Right now, he's walking more than he – or he's pretty close walking more than he's striking out. That number's down to around, I think, 16% or something like that. So what you're doing is – we'll tell you what we think, our opinions, but you can also follow the facts. Mm-hmm. And so you can get both sides. Like you and I like talking about what we may think can happen, but we're also grounding it. And this is what James is doing. And, I mean, he's – 
you know, I think there's a good chance he's going to be in Fort Wayne and High A in, uh, in August. And then depending upon what happens there, you know, you could even make a, an argument he could be in Double A by, by the start of next year. And then from there, you know, Preller is not afraid to move guys who have talent fast. So, I mean, maybe there's even an outside shot. You could see him in El Paso. And uh, I, think, I think James would do some damage in El Paso. <laughs> when it comes time, I think you're going to get exactly that. Yeah. I, I really do. John Conniff here with us, Mad Friars, uh, as we continue here on Sports Talk. Adrian, uh, you had a chance yesterday to, uh, to spend uh, you know, lunch uh, out with us uh, at Lucy's and talked a lot of baseball with John. What are you most uh, excited about for his trip to El Paso this time? Well, John, I'm, I'm very excited that you got a chance to see El Paso, but my biggest thing is um, you know, there, a lot has changed in this city since the pandemic happened, since the last time even you came to the Loop and Go Studios. What's the biggest change that uh, at least comes to your mind when you first came here to El Paso this time around? You know, I think that's hard to say after only a day, and then I'm uh, I'm blinded by the Mexican food so much. So I got I got to have to think about that some more. Right now, I think I'm still uh, uh, reveling in in the trip to Lucy's yesterday because that'll be a new spot when we write up uh, our guide to Medford's guide to dining. Lucy's will definitely be included in. Uh, in the thing. But yeah, I think El Paso is a good city and you know, the Chihuahuas just do a, a fantastic job. And I'm sure that's something you guys have talked about how baseball didn't, you know, you've been here a long time, Steve. I mean, it'd be fascinating to hear you talk about the difference between the Sun Kings, the Diablos and the Chihuahuas and what the Chihuahuas do better than the other two guys. It's so interesting when you compare, because I've o- I always thought that the Diablos did a great job. And then mm-hmm. um, Sun Kings before my time a little bit, because I think when we moved here in 78, they were already about five or six years removed from being a, a, um, an affiliate team back then of the Angels. But it's changed because what I've noticed is it's always been about promotions in El Paso. Jim Paul put it on the map. He basically made minor league baseball what everybody started copying back in those days in the 70s and 80s because it was all about the promotions, getting fans in, uh, the, the quarter hot dogs and the, and, and the cheap beer and, and, and the chicken and things like that. And now I feel like They've got this on-field promotion down to a science with yeah. Andy and how they do something between every inning. And the ballpark is beautiful. It looks as nice now as it did nine years ago. The upkeep is terrific. That's the thing, too. When they built Cohen Stadium in 1990, by the mid to late 90s, they already started different minor league ballpark uh, construction builds. So I don't want to say it was out of date, but it was it – was, that style ballpark wasn't something that became popular around the rest of minor league baseball after a few years because they all started building those downtown parks like you see now here at, at, at Southwest University Park. So I think the one thing the Chihuahuas have done is this. They understand the formula. They stick to it. And, you know, they want to make sure that fans have a great time. If you win, it's a bonus. But they want to make sure that you just have fun out at the ballpark. And that's the most important thing. They want the, they want the team to win and the product to be exciting but ultimately, they can't control who wins and who loses. All they can control is what, how much fun the fans have when they go to the ballpark, and that's something they've done so well. One thing I can compare and contrast is I go to San Antonio every year, too, and I, I like the guys who run the missions. They do a great job. But there is such a huge difference in how that team is seen in the city mm-hmm. compared to El Paso. I mean, they're never on the news. Yeah. You go to the airport, there's no, no missions gear in there. There's, there's no coverage of them in the newspaper. And no matter how hard they try, but El Paso really 
just embraces uh, the Chihuahuas. And it's it, sad about yeah. the missions because really, other than the Spurs, the missions should be the number two thing in San Antonio, although now UTSA is getting popular. Right. But really, minor league baseball, that's a big deal. And the missions have been around forever, so I wouldn't understand why they've never really been able to connect in the city the way they, you know, here in El Paso. A big part is the stadium. The stadium is an older stadium. It's a pretty good distance outside of town. Yeah. And uh, a lot of – when you build a minor league stadium, it's not for people like you and me. It's for people like my wife and my daughter, something so they're entertained. You only have to be a baseball fan, and you can enjoy your time going to the Chihuahua Stadium. There's something there for you. I believe it. Now, you got to get out of here. Yep. So before you leave, I want to mention the website, madfriars.com. There is a subscription uh, drop-down bar where you can essentially meet all of you, register, subscribe. There's a tab for interviews tab for radio and media. There's the forum, which you have to be a, a member to be a part of. No, you, you don't have to be a member to be a part of the forum. The forum's kind of a, a sign of how old we are. And that, that that was what kids people used to do, Adrian, before Twitter. So that's, that's yeah. what the forum was there for. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Well, we have, boards. I like it. Yeah, we have it's look, it's five bucks a month, forty dollars uh, for a year. All the money goes to pay for uh, our hotels, rental cars, and uh, Airlines. None of it goes oh, to, to feed me Mexican food, unfortunately. So uh, it's a good deal. We all have full-time jobs. And if you want to just check it out, about half the content on the site is free. The daily is always free. And uh, we appreciate all the guys in San Diego and, and you guys out at Affiliate Cities for helping us out. And that's a great thing. So thank you very much. Where do we find the dining guide? The dining guide... <laughs> They'll be the, I'll we'll put a separate thing on the dining guide. Every year I, I write something on a, a guide to uh, Medfriars Road Food, a guide to, to places. I want to see a drop-down bar for dining guide. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on that, man. We'll, take your, we'll definitely take your, uh, your uh, suggestions into consideration. Keep up the good work. Enjoy your trip here to town. It's great to see you, spend some time with you, and I'm happy you're back for the annual pilgrimage here in El Paso, John. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Both you and Adrian had a great time. John Connett, folks, with us from Mad Friars. Check him out at madfriars.com. Come back with more right after Charlie won. He's up with our first traffic update of the afternoon. And they were rooting for Tiger because you understand why. Um, and it was crazy. He was even in tears. How about that? Tiger Woods in tears after uh, you know shooting today. Uh, three over par. Yeah, no, it was an emotional time. Like when you were watching it live, it was just emotional because, like, he had struggled so much. But even on 17, the crowd was so encouraging for him. He hit a great shot on 18, which gave a lot of encouragement that he could have birdied out and really finished off his day on, on a nice note. So walking up and just kind of seeing the the grandstands on his left side, it was emotional. Even uh, on the first tee at that point, uh, Xander Schauffele, um, Rory McIlroy, and Colin Morikawa, they stopped before they teed off and just watched in admiration as Tiger Woods uh, you know, approached the green. So it was just kind of a it was almost like a passing of a torch in a sense that it's uh, almost the end for Tiger Woods that you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and now golf will be uh, handed over to the next generation. Tiger even said today that he's not retiring from the game, but he doesn't know if he'll be physically able to play again uh, when it comes back around to St. Andrews. He goes, I'll be able to play future British Opens. Yes, but eight years time, I doubt if I'll be competitive at this level. So I think I think finally reality 
kind of set in and, and, and Tiger is coming to grips with everything because of the injuries and all, all that he suffered, especially after that car accident, it's just getting tougher and tougher for him to go out and play. I don't expect to see Tiger for a while. I mean, I get it. This is the last major for, of the year, and so we, we won't expect to see him uh, for a while anyways. But I do expect him to, to really rehab over the next six to eight months and really try to get himself as, in best shape as possible come 2023 to try to uh, you know make another run for it. I don't know if Tiger can win another one uh, down the line, but I would never count him out. He's, he's that kind of athlete right there. He's like Kobe Bryant. He's like LeBron James. He's like all these great athletes that we see uh, – throughout the years, whenever they are at the the biggest stage of them all, you can never count these guys out. I think the key for Tiger will be, can he continue to heal his legs over the next six to eight months? If he does, and he's able to walk easier and, and not struggle as much as he has been, then that could really go a long way for him uh, being being better off next year when he comes back. But Tiger's already said he has nothing planned the rest of the year. Um, probably just done for 2022 and now just uh, go ahead and, and think about the upcoming season and, and what ultimately you know could be a, a much better year if he is able to get healthier and that's and that's going to be the key. Yeah, even before you know, before he had that tragic uh, car accident that set him back 17 months. Uh, before that, he had such bad back surgeries and back injuries, and those are still lingering around. So you talk about uh, his leg issues, you talk about his back issues. I mean, they're starting to pile up as far as injuries. And yeah, modern day medicine is really helping Tiger the best it can. But uh, th- you know, there's only so much he could do as he's aging in this sport. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if he's going to win another one. Down down the line, but again, I wouldn't count him out. The the greats out there would never count uh, a guy like Tiger Woods out. Hundred percent. As we hit the bottom of the hour here on Sports Talk, uh, again, a lot of good conversation. If you've been watching golf and you want to talk about the Open, we'd love to hear you uh, get on the show as well. Five zero five six zero zero nine. Our telephone number. That's five zero five six zero zero nine. You can tweet the show six hundred ESPN El Paso or uh, chat with us in real time while you listen in on our mobile app powered by United Bank. All you got to do is just uh, either uh, go to the app stores and type in KROD or 600 ESPN El Paso. You'll see our mobile app and you'll be able to listen to the show and chat in real time. All right, let's send it back to Adrian and get our first bottom of the hour sports center update. Adrian, thank you very much. We continue here on the program. Checking Twitter right now. King Eric checks in with us. With the All-Star break coming up, he tweets, who are you looking at in the second half to separate themselves in Major League Baseball? Well, first off, uh, King Eric, you look at baseball right now. The Yankees already have 13-game separation over the Rays, even though they've been playing mediocre baseball as of late. The Astros have an 11-game lead over Seattle. Uh, because the Astros are still playing terrific ball in Seattle, by the way. How about this? The Mariners have won 11 in a row, and they're 11 back of the Astros. That just goes to show you how good the Astros have been. And also, the Mariners were sub-500 before they got hot. So if you think about it, AL East, AL West already has separation. Same thing for the NL West with the Dodgers right now. Nine and a half games in front of the Padres. So the three races that really we could talk about in terms of separation would be the AL Central along with the NL Central 
and the NL East. Now, I don't think the Mets separate themselves from the Braves. I think that race is going to be competitive, even with Scherzer back and DeGrom on his way back. So I don't necessarily think the Mets, just because they're going to get healthy with their two big aces, are going to start to distance themselves from the Braves. Braves are too good. Uh, Both of these two teams are, are terrific. So that could be a good race that goes down to the wire. Now, NL Central. Milwaukee with a three-game lead over the Cardinals. Um, Again, I don't necessarily think that either of these two teams are suddenly going to distance themselves from the competition. So I think that Milwaukee and St. Louis could could be neck and neck like the Mets and and also uh, the Braves, which then brings us to the Central in the American League. Minnesota, three and a half games over the Guardians, four-game lead over the White Sox. So the question is, Do you feel that the Minnesota Twins are suddenly going to go on a run like the Yankees and the Astros? I don't. Are the Guardians going to get hot? And uh, and, and the White Sox, those are 500 baseball teams right now. They're not playing great ball like the uh, Braves and the Mets. They're 500 uh, this year, 44 and 44 for the Guardians, 44 and 45 for the White Sox. Minnesota's 49 and 42. That's an interesting division because it's so mediocre. And Adrian, as I try to break it down, once again, I don't see any reason why, of those three, anybody's just going to run away with it. I do think the White Sox have the best chance because they have probably the best roster on paper and have been very much underachieving uh, the first half of this season. So if I had to pick any team, it would be the White Sox, but I'm not ready to just say that Chicago's going to get hot and blow away Minnesota and Cleveland here in the second half. Yeah, nothing that the White Sox have done this year has really signaled that they, they're they primed and positioned to go on a crazy run and really distance themselves in this division. But, I mean, I, I'm so excited about the expanded wild card and what that could bring on both ends. I mean, you're talking about so many different teams involved on the American League side of things and even some, like, sneaky teams teams who can get involved in this as well like the White Sox of course you know the Blue Jays fire Montoyo but they don't they want to be involved in the playoffs and yep. postseason baseball so like there are teams like the Orioles like the Guardians like the Rangers and the even the Angels who won't go away easily when it comes to the wild card spot well first off the AL East is fun because everybody's over 500 all right if you go from top to bottom the Orioles by the way they've won 10 in a row and they're now over 500 and they're still in last place but there is only a four-game difference between second and fifth in the AL East because of what the Orioles have done. And let's be honest, nobody had any expectations for Baltimore this year. They're young, they're rebuilding. When they get hot and win 10 in a row, you get excited because that's not supposed to happen. So that's kind of fun, and I'm looking forward to seeing all these teams in the AL East, and can they continue to slug it out with each other uh, as we get closer for the wild card race? Yeah, and it kind of feels like there are teams also in the American League where if they don't make the playoffs, like the White Sox, like, you know, uh, of course, the the Angels and the Blue Jays, there's going to be some serious discussions in the offseason about what the direction uh, of these uh, organizations are in the future, because if they're not cutting it, players on those rosters, they might, you know, do some major moves in the offseason to try to shape things up. I'm with you on that one. So keep an eye on it, folks. It should be good. Good question, Eric. I, I don't necessarily think anybody really separates themselves. I think that the three races that are up in the air could stay up in the air in the second half, and I don't really see the three teams that have blown everybody out, the Yankees, Astros, and Dodgers, uh, giving way in the second half. So I think that for the most part, they'll 
they'll all win running away. And then the question is, who's going to win these wild card races? And that's going to be a lot of fun. But a good question. Enjoyed that. 600 ESPN El Paso on Twitter. When we come back, what's it like to come back and see people you haven't seen in 10, 20, 30 years? Well, that was what last night was like. I'll give you an idea when we return. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues right here. 600 ESPN El Paso. 46 past the hour as we continue. Coming up in about 15 minutes, uh, author Marshall John Fisher's got a brand new book out, Miami 1972 and the NFL's Only Perfect Season. And uh, this book is nearly 400 pages long from uh, a man who grew up in Miami and will tell the story of the 72 Dolphins. So that's going to be coming up here. Uh, 17-0 is the name of the book. And we'll have Marshall John Fisher in about 15 minutes here on the show. I don't remember high school much. I'm at a point now in my life where I'm, I'm about to be 50 soon. And um, to be honest with you, I don't even remember starting at the radio station as much as I used to. I mean, there's certain things you kind of think about um, and, and some memories you hold more than others. But um, it turns out that uh, the classes of 91 and 92 for Coronado are having their big reunion uh, this weekend. Started last night, goes all the way through, I think, Sunday um, or Saturday. And it's so interesting because there are a lot of people that came in from out of town. The, the one thing I know about my particular graduating class, and this is 31 years now for us, is that most of the Coronado class of 91 left and never came back. It's amazing because last night we're over at Asatunas. And for those of you that um, you know are familiar with Asetunas, you understand that yes, it's new ownership, and they've they've done some things inside. It looks very nice, but Asetunas, uh, to be honest, hasn't changed all that much from what I remember thirty years ago when I first started going there. Um, or let's see, no, maybe a little less, like twenty-seven years ago. But point is, I digress. Um, it was packed yesterday with people, and many of these uh, people I haven't seen in at least 10 years since the 20th, some 20 or 30 years. And and it's pretty wild. Um, people came in from England, um, Philly, New York, California, all parts of Dallas, Atlanta. Saw a lot of people yesterday, Adrian. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't really like uh, like super popular like a lot of the uh, my other classmates were in high school. I knew a lot of people, but um, you know I wasn't uh, one of the uh, you know real popular ones. So uh, having an opportunity now to see people all these years later, it, uh, it it's kind of a mind blower. I had, had a good time with that, and it's funny when when someone will say to you, you know, where are you living? And I'm like, well, I'm I'm here. Really? What do you do? And, and I tell them what I do, and then they, they start to get interested in that. And, and they say, well, how long have you been doing that? Well, 27 years, and it just blows people away a little bit. So um, I, I enjoyed it myself yesterday. Had a lot of fun, um, you know, able to um, touch base with a lot of people I, I just haven't seen in a while, and, and that's always a lot of fun. Um, but now you start to realize, like, for us reunions – Maybe we get a 40th, most likely a 50th, 
And I mean, I can't even think of what 20 or 19 years from now is going to be like. I'll be 68. And, and ultimately, that could be, you know, the next time this, this group gets together again. Now, let me ask you this, Steve. Were there like, uh, were there people who you had no clue they were that person until they, uh, they addressed themselves as that person? Like they've changed in appearance in a big way? Or could you pretty much tell who everybody was? Some look different. Some look exactly the same. And the hardest part is names because you don't want to get a name sure, wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's the worst. So, you know, and sometimes it's almost like you do a double take. You, you talk first. You, 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 and in your mind, you're analyzing, um, you know, everybody you're talking to just to make sure you get it right. And then when you realize exactly who it is, then you, you know, you, you, you say, oh, yeah, that's right. But yeah, for the most part, there are definitely people that look nothing like they used to and others that um that do that that do look very similar so um you know i had a much bigger head of hair in high school than i do now so but i'm still but i mean but i'm clean shaven so for the most part my face looks similar to to the way it did years ago um i I don't know i've never really thought about it too much but it is fun to see people that um, you, you talk to and, and you realize, man, it's been that long. Like you really, you know, some of these people you, you say to yourself, like I saw someone yesterday that we were in kindergarten together. Wow. That was, that's 43 years ago. So I mean, or 44 years ago now. So think about that. And it's crazy how the time flies and, and, and coming into town and seeing people just because for people that are out of El Paso, when you travel back, especially for a reunion, it's a really big deal. It is because you haven't been here in forever. You haven't seen these people in forever. But when you live here, and ultimately this is like your everyday normal life, I don't know, reunions don't see as, seem as big just because you've stuck around all these years. You haven't left town, started your life someplace else, started your family someplace else, and then decide you want to come back and, and, and kind of see everything again the way it was. It's like Gross Point Blank, the movie that came out years ago. Um, you know, he comes back and sees a lot of his friends that he knew from, from high school, even though he's now a trained professional killer. But, hey, he liked being back. But if you're if you're already here, I don't know. It's sometimes it's nice to see people, but it's different because you you just you haven't left like others have. Now let me ask you this: uh, When it came to the people who are there, what was the distribution like for people who are in El Paso versus those who are traveling into El Paso? Like, if you had to put a percentage on it, eighty percent out of town, twenty percent wow, in town. Wow, that's a that's a solid reunion. That's a real reunion right there, where you have people from out of town coming in and visiting and kind of reminiscing on on El Paso. I love that. I pit, we, we, we got a table right when we got there, right? And I didn't want to lose the table. So, like, I never got up for the first two hours. Everybody would come to me. I felt like the godfather. Nice. Like, people would come over, say hi. We would talk a little bit. Then somebody else would come over. And I was like, wow, this is, I've never, I didn't have to leave my chair. I thought that that was wild. And then finally, I said, all right, you lazy ass, get up, go look around, look for people you haven't seen, and go and, and go do something a little bit. So the last hour, hour and a half or so, I started doing that a little bit more and had some really good conversations, saw people I hadn't seen, and, 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 and it was a lot of fun. So that was nice. And uh, like I said, when, you know, my wife's a year younger, so she was the, the 92 class versus the 91 class, even though she, she moved away. Uh, right when she started Coronado, but she knew pretty much everybody there because they all grew up together. So it's it's fun when you see people that uh, again 
you just don't do this very often. For the most part, when you go out, yeah, there's some that have stayed or come back, but for the most part, Adrian, it's it's so interesting to think about how many of, of our graduating class left. Now, the question is, you're coming up on your 10-year reunion in a few years. Will you be uh, venturing into uh, to, to do your 10-year? No, I will not go to any kind of reunion. Why? I loved, I loved, I loved my time at Franklin. I, I'm good. I'm good. I, I see everybody that I, I need to from high school on social media all the time. I don't need to, to hit them up for a reunion like this. Interesting. So for you, it means nothing to you. Yeah, because I have again, I have most of the people who I liked from high school on social media. I keep tabs on them that way. I, I mean, what am I going to say? Hey, I saw that trip to Cali the the last couple weeks ago. That looked really fun. Like, what am I going to tell them when I see them in person? I don't know, but maybe just just a chance to re re you know rehash things, see how things are going, see people you haven't seen, see who's changed a little bit since the end of high school, see who's still the same, that kind of stuff. Maybe if it's Asatunas, maybe if it's eighty percent out of towners, I'll. I'll, I'll consider that. But, uh, yeah, my, my fiance Alyssa, is the same deal. She's a year younger, so she's a class of 2016. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it'd be interesting if we both went to something like that. It would be. All right, when we come back, hour number two here on Sports Talk, uh, we'll talk 72 Dolphins with Marshall John Fisher, the book 17-0. and 0. That's next here on 600 ESPN El Paso. All right, here we go. Second hour underway on Sports Talk. He's Adrian Broaddus. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. So happy to have author Marshall John Fisher joining us on the show right now to talk about his brand new book that just came out this week, 17-0, Miami 1972 and the NFL's Only Perfect Season. Uh, first off, uh, I appreciate the time, Marshall. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations uh, on, uh, on the new book. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Tell me about uh, what made you decide all these years later to go back in time, uh, you know, what, uh, 50 years, and take us through the journey of NFL's uh, still only perfect uh, season. Yeah, well, I uh, grew up in Miami, and I was a nine-year-old kid that year uh, during the perfect season. And I think uh, for anyone growing up there or, or just living there at that time, it made a great impact on us. Uh, and, I, you know, especially I'm a kid, and uh, I always knew when I became a writer, I wanted to someday write about this team, but, but they weren't, it's not just that they didn't lose a game, but they were a very special group of people, very interesting, un, uh, intelligent, unusual group of football players. And, uh, you know, I just uh, waited a long time. And finally I figured the 50th anniversary is coming up, and this is the perfect time for a book to come out. Are you amazed that there really hasn't been all that much written about this 72 Dolphins team in the past? Yeah, I, I am actually surprised. Uh, they haven't gotten that much attention. I mean, uh, you know, the NFL did name them the best team ever uh, on their 100th anniversary of the league, but um, a lot of people disagree with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but you can't argue with the record. No, you can't. Um, and I'm curious, as a kid growing up in South Florida, really starting in the mid '60s when you first arrived uh, through the through the '70s, um, what was it like? Was was Miami a huge? Dolphin uh, community, even before the 72 season, when did the city really start to warm up to the franchise? Well, I'll tell you exactly when, uh, because uh, first of all, it was a very young team, you know, uh, they'd only been around six years that season. They, their first year was 1966, same year my family moved down there. And um, the first few years, you know, an expansion team doesn't do that great. And uh, they, they had, you know, 20,000 fans in the Orange Bowl usually. Um they had some diehards, but they weren't. It wasn't a big deal. 
And uh, everything changed in 1970 when they brought uh, Don Shula down there. Um, you know, Miami, I should say, also was a much smaller place. It was a much quieter, smaller place back then. It was nothing like the Miami or South Florida today. And it was never considered a place where you could really have a, a major sports team. And, in fact, the Dolphins, you know, up through 72 and, and even later, were the only major league sports team in the whole state. So things were a lot different than now. But when Shula came down in 1970, he immediately made them into a playoff team the first year. Second year, they went to the Super Bowl, and then things got really crazy. And, you know, there was huge, huge and uh, turnout after that. And in 72, they sold out every game. And uh, they uh, had the, everyone was waving the white hankies, and everyone was talking about the Dolphins all over town. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you wrote about the um, uh, Don Shula move from Baltimore to Miami uh, in, in the book early on. And uh, when you talked about it, it's funny how ultimately a sports writer for the Miami Herald was kind of the person that uh, did it and and planted the idea in owner Joe Robbie about Shula because Robbie hadn't really thought about him at all. He was wanting that perfect coach. And I guess yeah. it's so interesting because in those days, you know, you would think that a guy like Shula would be pretty close to untouchable because of the success he had with the Colts. But, hey, you throw a nice contract, a GM job, and an ownership stake, which had to be unheard of in those days, at a young guy like Shula, it's hard not to get excited about something like that with the Dolphins. That's true. But the other thing was, uh, you're right, that Joe Robbie thought, he never thought that he'd have a chance at Shula. He was the, even though he was uh, only 40 years old, he was the, the, you know, the best coach, considered the best coach in football, even though he had never taken his team all the way you know, through the Super Bowl championship but the thing he didn't realize i think is how unpopular and how unhappy shula had become in baltimore you know in 1968 they finally won the nfl championship but it was the third year that the nfl champ had to play the afl champ in something called the super bowl third super bowl so they were supposed to kill the jets that wasn't even supposed to be a game and they got they lost to new york and joe namath and uh that was humiliating for shula and the owner blamed him Carol Rosenblum blamed him and, and publicly kind of made his life miserable. And, and the next year, 69, they didn't have that great a year. So there was a lot of talk about getting rid of him. And Carol Rosenblum was thinking about getting rid of him, even though he hadn't told him that. But Shula knew things were not going that great in Baltimore. So actually, he was prime. He was primed and ready when he got that phone call from, uh, as you say, from Bill Broucher, the reporter whom he had known in college, kind of just feeling him out. When we're talking about the Miami area, um, is it true that fans in the area couldn't watch the team's homes games on the television as uh, that year yeah. in ninety in 1972 was the last year where all those NFL home games were blacked out on local television? That's right, yeah. That that rule about where that, that when they sold out that they'd lift the blackout, that didn't happen until the next year. So, yeah, I remember very well. We didn't get to see any home games on television, and uh, we listened on the radio. <laughs> it seems like a... Well, it was a different era, you know, um, and uh, it was Richard Nixon who had a big part in uh, changing that rule because he was a huge football fan, and uh, he he plays a big part in the book because he was such a football fan, and he was uh, he loved the Redskins, but he also admired Shula a lot, and, and used to write to him and call him up. So uh, Nixon was really lobbying Pete Rozelle of the NFL to change that rule, but it didn't happen in '72. 
Man, uh, that that's uh, really interesting. As we continue our conversation with Marshall yeah. John Fisher, the uh, name of the book, seventeen and zero, Miami, nineteen seventy two, and the NFL's only perfect season. Now, uh, I'm assuming the Orange Bowl was pretty much a, a sellout game after game. So, if you weren't lucky enough to get tickets, you had to just listen on the radio. It'd be the only way to follow the team. That's right. That's right. We all knew the WIOD guys pretty well. Uh, Hank Farrow and uh, Rick Reaver and. And Larry King, before in 70 and 71, Larry King was doing color commentary because he started his career down there, and he covered the Dolphins. I heard about that. In fact, I heard that prior to uh, Hank Goldberg's great run in Miami for so many years as one of the great sports voices uh, of uh, South Beach, that Larry King was the guy. He was kind of the one that preceded uh, Goldberg out there in Miami. Yeah, uh, other, yeah, and Henry Barrow also. I made a come between the two. I'm not sure, but um, but yeah, Larry King was. You know, he started his career in Miami Beach, just as doing interviews on the radio, and and uh, then got hired by WIOD, and was a he loved that team, and I, I got to interview him shortly before he passed away in uh, in 2020, and um, he just loved. He was happy to talk about that team because he still loved them so much. When you started coming up with the idea of writing this book and you really then started reaching out to surviving members of the 72 team, were a lot of these guys uh, pretty uh, you know, willing to sit down with you and, and, and go down memory lane and, and, and give you their recollections of what they remembered from that season? Yes. Uh, most, most of the guys who were surviving and were still you know, in good uh, health uh, were happy to talk. A few weren't, which is disappointing, but... I was able to interview 11 players, and all of them were just very, very happy to talk at great length uh, about, you know, about their experience. And, uh, they, you know, they loved being part of that team, and uh, they, sure, they loved to talk about it. And, and really, if you think about it, in 1972, you look at the way the NFL uh, was in, in those years. And, you know, you, we, we talked about the Jets earlier. They kind of had their run a few years earlier. And then uh, it was never the same for them after that. And once the NFL merged uh, with the AFL, it changed the whole complexion of the game and, and the way, uh, you know, the AFL had, had dominated in terms of passing offense in the past. Um, you tell me. Miami was built with a young nucleus. They had a great coach, and it just seemed like it was the perfect formula for success. Nobody would ever think that you could go undefeated in those years, but at the same time, they had all they had all the right ingredients, didn't they, Marshall? They did. It was quite an interesting mix. You know, they had a few superstars, but they had a lot of players who had been tossed off of other teams that. The offensive line, which is one of the great all-time offensive lines, they, they call themselves the expendables because most of them had been let go by other teams or not even drafted. Um, the no-name defense, you know, they had one big name in Nick Bonacani who had been an AFL all-star. But other than that, uh, they were largely unknown before 72. But such great players, you know, and uh, they at every position, they just had someone who was just really, really good. And not always not always the someone as big or as fast as you might think for that position, but they were smart and really motivated and just extremely good athletes. 
Well, what also is interesting to note is the year before the perfect season, they went to the Super Bowl, but they lost to the Cowboys 24-3, to and it kind of made you wonder, would they would they come back? Because sometimes teams are able to recover from that and, and show that they've got the ability to, to, to return to the game. Other times, it's, you know, you might be lucky to see them return to another Super Bowl. So, um, you know, when the team had their first taste of winning an AFC title, but then losing to the Cowboys, let's talk about the kind of motivation they had to get back and, and do it again the following yeah. year. Yeah, well, that was absolutely the catalyst for the perfect season. You know, Shula had, uh, he had in, in, in um, Baltimore, as I said, he was an acclaimed coach, but had never gone all the way. Uh, in 64, they, they were 12-2, and two, but got killed by the Browns in the championship game. In 67, they were actually undefeated with one game to play, but they lost to the L.A. Rams in that game and didn't even make the championship game. So, in 68, as I said, they won the NFL championship, but then lost the Super Bowl. So he really surely had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. But then he came to Miami, got him to the Super Bowl, lost again badly to Dallas. And now that chip on his shoulder, you know, was a huge boulder. And it really fused a mania in him, an obsession to get back to the Super Bowl and win it. And uh, he, he was able to transmit that to each and every one of his players. He, he went up to them after that game, one by one and said, I want you to remember how you feel right now and make sure you never feel that way again. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Meanwhile, you look at the way the AFC was that season. The Pittsburgh Steelers were 11-3, and probably the second-best team behind the Dolphins, although the Raiders were also 10-3-1. and Terrific. But it really was Pittsburgh, I think, was probably the only team that could say that they had a defense that was on the caliber of Miami. And we all know what the Steelers were about in the 70s. While the Dolphins were kind of rising to greatness, the Steelers were also in the beginning of that same era of dominance that took them to a multiple multiple Super Bowls over the decade. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, they, they both made it to the AFC Championship game. The Steelers made it by uh, that um, the immaculate reception against Oakland uh, with Franco Harris. And the very next week, they in, they played the Dolphins. The thing is, aside uh, uh, in addition to that uh, no blackout rule, another funny thing back then was that the home field advantage did not go to the team with a better record. Uh, it was until a couple years later the divisions took turns hosting the AFC Championship game. So even though Miami was undefeated, they had to fly out to Three Rivers Stadium, Pittsburgh, a very tough place to, to play with the rabid fans they had there, and take on the Steelers, who had an unbeaten streak of their own. They had not lost at home all year. So uh, that was a tough assignment and uh, a great game, uh, but they were able to win it. It's so interesting because if you look at the playoff run from Miami versus Washington since they met in Super Bowl Seven that year, Washington blew out uh, Green Bay in the divisional round. They, they beat up the Cowboys in the NFC Championship to get to the Super Bowl. Miami... They beat Cleveland by six in the divisional round at the Orange Bowl. And then, as you mentioned, in the AFC Championship, they beat Pittsburgh on the road at Three Rivers 21-17. So it's almost as if they were they, they knew how to win close games. That's true. Um, and to be frank, uh, in the Cleveland game, they, did, they really just didn't play that well, and they, they were able to salvage it in the, in the second half. But uh, And the Pittsburgh game was close, although not as close as it sounds because uh, uh, they were, Pittsburgh had to score last to get to within that margin, but it was a, it was a good close game. Um, it was tough. 
Um, and the funny thing is the next year, uh, the Dolphins were even better, even though they weren't undefeated. And that year, pretty much the same team, but they, they destroyed their playoff and Super Bowl opponents. Um, but you're right. In 1972, they were very clutch. They won uh, several close games like that. Like that. Wow. Listen, uh, we're up against the break. Marshall, can we get you back, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, 17 and 0 when we get back? Sounds good. Marshall John Fisher joining us here uh, on our 600 ESPN El Paso hotline, talking about his brand-new book on the 72 Dolphins. Come back with more right after Charlie One and this traffic update. As we uh, continue our conversation right now with author Marshall John Fisher, his new book, 17 and 0, Miami 1972 and the NFL's only perfect season is available right now. Uh, Amazon.com, easy way to get it, and uh, you'll be uh, all set. And uh, in fact, you order today, you could, you could have it by Thursday of next week. It's the way to do it. And uh, we're talking about this 1972 uh, Dolphin team with, with Marshall, who uh, was a kid when uh, this uh, season uh, took place. And it's funny, when you grow up in, Mi- in Miami and you know the story, you lived the story, Marshall, but then you start to research on the book, talk to the guys that were a part of the team, how much of an eye-opener was it when you really started to hear about what went on uh, on and off the field? Yeah, there were a number of things I hadn't realized about the team uh, that, that happened and uh, heard about them talking to the guys. Uh, one thing I hadn't known was how, uh, how uh, segregated the team was. I guess that was pretty common back then even in the NFL that, you know, when Shula came down to Miami, he found that all the black guys would be on one side of the locker room and the white guys on the other side, and, and they uh, roomed separately as well. And he immediately instituted a change there um, and, and assigned roommates you know, with you know, mixed-race roommates and insisted the locker room be integrated. Uh, it's funny because uh, Mercury Morris told me that's something he tried to do when he came down as a rookie uh, during the rookie camp, but then uh, when the veterans arrived, he didn't have the guts to try to, try to do that. But... Um, Another thing, speaking of Mercury Morris, uh, you know, he was such a great college player at, um, at West Texas State uh, in Canyon, and uh, he had set an NCAA record for, uh, for oh, actually for single-game yardage and for season yardage and career yardage, uh, all of which were soon eclipsed by O.J. Simpson. But he did have – Mercury had a lot of records and uh, was probably – after O.J. was the second-best college runner coming out of college – but his first three years in Miami, he got very few carries. That's something I had not realized. Uh, very little playing time until uh, when they lost to Dallas in that Super Bowl. He kind of exploded because he didn't get a single carry in the huh. game, and they got killed. And he convinced Shula to give him a chance the next year. So in 1972 training camp, he got a lot of playing time in the exhibition games. He was amazing. Uh, they couldn't not play him. And he had a great year. Uh, he and Jim Kick kind of shared the running back position. And Mercury Morris got a thousand yards, uh, so that was a great story for him. Well, I look at the uh, you know what they had that season with Kick uh, Zonka. And then you mentioned Mercury Morris. Uh, there were so many weapons offensively on that team. We always look at Don Shula and consider him to be one of the most uh, innovative coaches in the history of the game. And yet you, you realize that he he had guys that just could do so many different things at, at his disposal, especially that 72 season. Yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of people after that time kind of figured that Don Shula – Love to run the ball, you know, because that team 
ran the ball 70% of the time. They had such an extraordinary running attack. So even though they had one of the greatest all-time wide receivers in Paul Warfield and a great quarterback, Bob Greasy, uh, and other good receivers too, Howard Twilley, Marlon Briscoe, they didn't pass much. Uh, and everyone figured, oh, Shula just loves to run. But in fact, you know, when he was in Baltimore with Johnny Unitas, they threw quite a bit. And, of course, when he got Dan Marino, uh, they became a very much a passing team. So Shula did the best with what he had. He was great at recognizing talent and figuring out what would work for a particular team. Man. Uh, by the way, I hear some crazy stories also. I don't know about uh, the jersey is really interesting. So uh, in 72, Marshall, the Dolphins brought back their white jerseys with the alternating aqua and orange stripes on the sleeves, which apparently were discontinued when Shula became coach. But not all the players liked wearing it, and Greasy and Zonka actually continued to wear their 70-71 white jerseys with plain sleeves because they didn't like the new look that they were bringing back. Wow. You know what? You got me there. <laughs> you know more about that than I do. <laughs> it's interesting because... I, I uncovered a lot of detail in my book, but that's one thing I didn't get. Well, let's put it this way. Nowadays, if you do something like that, you're paying a fine. Yeah. I mean, the NFL won't right, allow right. that. It's their strict uniform policy. But in those days, yeah. I guess, players still had a say about what they wanted to wear. And if they were they didn't like the look, they decided just not to do it. So Yeah, that's funny. I, I guess so. I did not know that. Meanwhile, when you talk about the quarterback room, you have a young guy in Bob Greasy who's the future of the franchise, and then you've got somebody in Oral Morrill who um, Shula knew from his Colts days, was pushing 40, comes in as the backup, but ends up winning comeback player of the year that season. Yeah, in fact, uh, he was. <laughs> I believe he was the all-pro quarterback that year. Um, Earl Morrill... Yeah, he was 38 years old. He was older than several of his uh, assistant coaches, almost as old as Shula. Um, and he was about to retire, but Shula convinced him to come down and be Greasy's backup. No, no one expected him to play much. But um, uh, I, the one game I was able to go to that year, and my family went to, we had to watch Bob Greasy wheeled off on a stretcher because he oh. broke his ankle in game five. And in came Earl Morrill, they're easygoing, uh, you know, he just went in there and said, all right, guys, let's just keep it going. And, and, and he did for 11 games. He, he, uh, was, he won 11 straight games for them. He was named the all-pro quarterback, and yet he didn't start the Super Bowl because Greasy came back healthy, and Shula finally, in the AFC Championship game, decided to go back with, with uh, Bob Greasy. Was that controversial at the time because Morrill had done yeah. such a great yeah. job? and? Fans are probably wondering, would there be uh, possibly some, you know, rust on Greasy? And how do you risk taking out the hot quarterback when you know he's been getting you there? Right. Well, it was a tough call for Shula, but uh, he had had to do the almost exact same decision um, four years earlier. In 1968, Unitas was hurt. Johnny mm -hmm. Unitas was hurt all year, and Earl Morrill was the backup for Shula uh, for the Colts. And he had an amazing year. Took him, uh, they went 15 and one going into the Super Bowl, and uh, and then Unitas was healthy again, and he had to decide who to play in the Super Bowl. He stuck with Morrill because he had had such a good season, and uh, he did not play well, and they lost that Super Bowl. That's the one they lost to the Jets. So now he's got the exact same thing with the same quarterback, Morrill. Uh, but in this case, well, for one thing, Morrill was four years older than he was. But the other thing is, uh, I think he learned his lesson maybe. Um, 
He didn't rush Greasy, but when Greasy was completely ready to go and Morrow was struggling a little bit in the AFC Championship game, he made the change at halftime, and it seemed like the perfect moment, and it worked perfectly. This team ended up being honored at the White House in 2013 by President Barack Obama instead of at the time in, in 73. Did you ever find out the reason why they were never honored back in, in 73, 72? Well, I think, uh, for one thing, I think uh, Nixon had a little bit on his plate there. With the, the, uh, the Watergate investigation had, had blossomed during that season, and I talk a lot about that in the book. I talk about Vietnam and Watergate and, and Nixon and uh, and the, I think it was the day after the Super Bowl that the first uh, guys, like Colson and um, and uh, I forget who else, were um, were indicted. So I think he had a bit on his mind, other than football, maybe. Although he was he certainly watched the game down in the Keys. Uh, I don't know if it was that, or um, you know, I'm not sure every team. You know, I'm not sure the president hosted the team every year back then. Uh, but for whatever reason, they didn't go, and uh, it was on the uh, 30th anniversary that uh, Obama had him to the White House. But Nixon really liked Shula, didn't he, Marshall? He did. He did. And he, he really admired him, although he was a big Redskins fan, and he loved George Allen, too. Um, and he picked the Redskins to win that game. But uh, he did admire Don Shula. He saw a lot of similarities between them, and there were. Um, they both grew up in small towns and played for small colleges. Like Nixon was on his team. He he loved football, but he was a, he was a bench warmer, whereas uh, Shuler was a star in college. But uh, but still, they went to these small colleges, and they, at, at one time or another, uh, were known, despite great success, as being the one who couldn't win the big one. You know, Nixon, in, after losing to Kennedy in 1960 and then losing the gubernatorial race in 62, he said, you won't have me to kick around anymore. I'm, I'm gone. And, he, and they, they said he couldn't win the big one. And when Shula lost... His Super Bowl to um, Dallas, he got a letter from President Nixon saying, I was in a similar place you were, and I believe you will do as I did and come through in the future. Wow. We'll come back. We'll wrap things up here with uh, Marshall John Fisher as we continue on Sports Talk. But first, right back to Adrian. One last Sports Center update. All right, Adrian, thank you very much. Again, 17-0 and 0 is the name of the book, Miami 1972 and the NFL's Only Perfect Season with author Marshall John Fisher. It's out. It's in hardcover. It is awesome. One of the greatest-looking covers I've ever seen. I love the color scheme, Marshall. It's fantastic. And it's available at Amazon.com, folks, uh, when you search 17-0 uh, and, 0 and uh, the, the Miami Dolphins. Uh, Want to ask you, we've seen it once really with the Patriots great run into the Super Bowl until they lose to the Giants they were perfect it is so tough now to go through a season undefeated and we used to hear about the Dolphins toasting champagne whenever a team would uh, would lose their first game deep into a, a regular season because they knew that it was preserved. These guys, especially the guys you talk to, they still look at this season and realize that they're the only perfect season left in the NFL, and they want to always be the only perfect uh, team in the in the history of the league, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, I, I think that champagne thing was overblown a little, but I think maybe a, a, a two or three guys used to do that. But, but you know, if you're part of a team, a group of guys and your buddies, and you, you did something that no one ever did before and they've never done in 50 years since, you got to be a little proud of that. And, uh, you know, I think they would have been very gracious, I'm sure, if the Patriots had managed to do it or if someone else did. But on the other hand, 
Sure. Each year, I'm sure when uh, the last team loses its first game, there's probably a few phone calls saying, hey, we're still the only ones. You know, I think that's just human nature. As you started to look at the personalities on this team, they had a little bit of everything, didn't they? I mean, they had wild guys, they had straight guys, they had tough guys. They they just they had. It was almost like it was that that ultimate mix. We talked about the talent earlier, but personality wise, should Shula get more credit just because he was able to blend that you know all all of those personalities in the locker room on and off the field? Yeah, I think so. You know, there were there were such a mix, as you say. There was the the. Or clean-cut conservative guys like uh, Earl Morrill and Bob Greasy and Howard Twilley, and then you got the you had the kind of the wild party guys with the big uh, big uh, uh, sideburns and Fu Manchu mustaches. You know, you got like Jake Scott and Manny Fernandez, Jim Kick and Zonka, and they'd be partying all night. And then some quieter but uh, very liberal play, uh, politically guys: uh, Mark Fleming, Marlon Briscoe, Duck Swift. Who, I played for Little Amherst College, um, all kinds of different groups, and at, at a very, you know, at a very divisive time in America. And I think Shula does deserve a lot of credit because he really, he really infused each of them with this, this motivation and this determination to win. And, to, and they, they took that to heart and they it brought them together. Not only did they have the perfect season, but they went back to back as Super Bowl champions. How do you, we don't really see this ever, where it's uh, you know a team running it back and defending their Super Bowl with another Super Bowl ring in, in itself. Those those, uh, those days are just uh, you know it, it, we don't see those too much nowadays in football. Yeah, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, the NFL named the '72 Dolphins the best team ever. Of course, you can't ever say one team is the best team ever, but they certainly had the best season ever. Uh, but the funny thing is that they weren't even the best Dolphin team ever because they were better the next year. 73, they just dominated completely, even though they lost one close game early on and another that was meaningless at the end of the season. Um, in the playoffs, in the Super Bowl, and the whole rest of the season, they, no one came close to them. They were just incredible. So, yeah, that was a, it was a great two years, that's for sure. What did you enjoy the most after uh, finishing the book, would you say, is uh, you know, you're most proud of with this project? Well, I, I think I, what I tried to do in the book was not just to tell a story of a football team, but to talk about the personalities involved and also all the historical and social context that it happened in, um, in Miami with the, both conventions taking place on Miami Beach that year and Nixon being down there a lot while Watergate was building and the Vietnam War was still raging. I tried to bring that all together and interweave all these different stories. And uh, so that's what I hope I succeeded at. Nice. And is there a particular favorite part of the book that, that you enjoy the most? Do you think our, our readers or really uh, our listeners will enjoy when they get a chance to read it? Um, well, <laughs> I hope they enjoy it all. I mean, a, a favorite part for me is uh, the Super Bowl. I give it, <laughs> you know, that was the culmination of it all. And I, I give a long uh, uh, analysis, not analysis, but a long description of everything in the whole Super Bowl week and everything that built up and and the whole game, that was an exciting time. I'll tell you what, uh, you know what, as somebody that can appreciate the 72 Dolphins uh, for what they were able to accomplish, I'm like you. I hope we don't ever see another undefeated team. If we do, you know, the Dolphins will always be the first. They'll always hold, uh, you know, hold, hold the title. But it really speaks volumes when you realize that they were able to get through their two playoff games, the Super Bowl, and, and the 14 regular season games with, without a loss. 
Yeah, it's kind of nice that there's something that just happened once ever. It's, you know, it makes it kind of special, and uh, and uh, especially that it was the, the, you know this kind of interesting time in history, in the early '70s. I think is a great great time. So I think it is nice to have a special accomplishment like that. Marshall, we appreciate the time that you gave us today. Congratulations on 17-0. and Excited about it, and I think a lot of our football fans will add that to their collection as they get ready for the start of the 2022 season, and more importantly, the 50th anniversary of uh, the Dolphins' undefeated season. Nicely done. Well, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed talking with you. We did as well. We'll come back with more. Wrap up hour number two in a moment. Sports Talk continues right here on 600 TSPN El Paso. Sports Talk continues. Tim Haggerty and story time about 20 minutes, a little more than 20 minutes away. I am so excited. He built that up. Hags has never built up story time ever, but this time it could be a classic. He's ready. He is ready. I'm ready. I've been looking forward to this all day since he told us that yesterday. So, yeah, I'm, uh, this is a highly anticipated segment coming on Sports Talk. I mean, the most hyped, uh, the hyped sports, uh, what, the most hyped story time ever? I think so. Yeah, I'm with you on this. Okay. We'll see what happens. Joe's in Northeast. He joins us next. Phone number is 915-505-6009 here on Sports Talk. Joe, what's going on? How are you? Good. Right before the All-Star break, I'll give you three points in baseball. I hope the kid from Coronado playing at Texas, I hope he goes in the first two rounds. I'll be watching the draft. What do you think? Yep. Um, I'm hearing... Bottom one uh, or second. So that's what I'm hearing right now. I okay. definitely think it's safe to say first three for him, for sure. And now we're talking about okay. Ivan Melendez, for those of you that don't know. So Yes, sir. All right, good. Okay. First out of the way. What's number two? Number two, they need to fire everybody in Toronto because uh, if they're above 500. Now, this is why I don't like analytics, Steve, because it doesn't doesn't always measure the, the, the human point. Everybody in that division is 500. So did he think all of a sudden Toronto's going to beat the Tampa Bay Rays, who are decent, Boston, who's decent, even the Orioles and the Yankees? I mean, you know, and they just lost to the Kansas City Royals JB team who had yeah. 10 players missing. So I, I don't it, – it's a bad move because that is the toughest division ever. I don't ever remember every team in a division being 500. Um, you're right, uh, and the Orioles just won ten in a row to get to over 500. But I, I get what you're saying. I do, um, but you got to realize that Toronto had a nice team coming in, and I do feel like 47 and 43, uh, especially the way they've played going into the break, is 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 lackluster given given what they have on paper. But you said it best: what you have on paper doesn't always translate to wins and losses. That's for sure. And everybody's playing good. Okay, yeah, and the last one. Uh, you're you're a New York guy, okay? The Yankees need to take Otani because he's under contract this year, and next year. Just hear me out. Bring in Rendon, eat his contract, trade Andujar, Dominguez, does an outfielder in AAA, maybe Trevino, and get Otani for two years. They win two World Series, and Artie Moreno should start at the bottom because what they're doing is terrible. He's never going to win a championship in California. I'm sorry, the the Angels are never going to win. And um, well, let me ask you this, okay? What's worse, wasting Otani, or for the last ten years the way they've wasted Mike Trout? I agree, but Otani, you get him cheap right now. You can get him for a year and a half. Yankees have a lot of farm picks, and maybe this is the guy that puts them over, take the Rendon contract, and at least for two years your World Series, and then as as that time goes on, let him hit the free agent market. But you have two rings. I'm so interested to see what happens with Otani. 
and if the Angels really put him on the block and 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 try to put the Rendon thing. The problem is with Rendon, you've also got Josh Donaldson. So um, you know, and and it's tough. You have to eat this year anyway because he's out for the rest of this year and, and and pay. But I still like Rendon. I think he's got something left in the tank. I could see the Yanks doing that because they'll do anything. Uh, and you could also imagine just after watching what Matsui did all those years, what uh, Otani Otani would be like the next. You know, they could they could ultimately say a hundred years later they've got they brought Babe Ruth back to the, to New York. Yeah, I mean, and then you went to World Series. You know, yeah, you lose some prospects. But you reload, throw in Aaron Hicks, you know, throw in Travis the catcher, and uh, it's win-win. Listen, because- not, the, the Angels aren't going to take a bag of balls from the Yankees for uh, for Otani. Well, okay, they've got they've but- got they've got good ones. The Yankees the Yankees have Peraza. They've got Volpe. Uh, they've got good yeah. pitchers in in uh, AAA right now. A couple of them was Nesky's one, and then they've got another one that's also really good. So, uh, and then you've got uh, you mentioned Jason Dominguez, the Martian, uh, who's an A ball. They've got plenty yeah. of guys. The question is, uh, would they would they want to go for it? It really would be interesting to see if they threw some of their best prospects and 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 ate and and ate Rendon to try to take uh, Otani back. That, that's fun hey, to good. think about. That's cheap. You get him cheap for two years because once he's free agent. He's going to be unaffordable. Nah, it's the Yankees. What do you mean unaffordable? They, no, they right now they 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 can't sign Judge and Otani. There's no way. No, no, that's true. Get him for two years. He's a good rental for two years. I know, but you realize Yankee fans don't want to see him go. They they wouldn't want to see Otani coming coming. I know, and but go. you know, so. World Series is World Series. The All ring right. is the thing. That's true. Good stuff. All right, Joe. Appreciate you. Good job, Estella. The ring is the thing from Joe. In Northeast, I like the way he ended that call, Adrian. That was good stuff. Yeah, that is good stuff. It is always interesting to kind of think about uh, the future of Otani, and, and we see it in all sports. When you're a star, uh, you the likelihood of you staying with one specific team, regardless of sport, is so slim nowadays. You, it's, you just don't see that happen where a team takes you initially, you grow through their system, and then you stay with them for life. You, you yeah. probably see a, another life with a Shohei Otani elsewhere at some point in his career. Well, and Trout. I think Definitely. Mike Trout. Now the problem with Trout is he's under contract for a long time, but you know he wants out, and the Angels just—they've tried. Listen, Moreno has tried everything he does; just just goes to hell. That's the best way to put it. He's tried to build a team around him; it just hasn't worked. So, all right, we'll come back with more. Final thirty minutes, Hags and story time. A sports talk continues right here, six hundred ESPN El Paso. More of sports talk underway. Final thirty minutes. Getting you into uh, Chihuahuas baseball. Your El Paso Chihuahuas. Back at home tonight with Round Rock. You heading out to the ballpark this weekend? Yes, Sunday I'll be out there with the family. I'm excited about that. Um, Alyssa's family. And then, um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to head out uh, for the the first time in a while. And then this is the last chance you'll get a chance to see the Chihuahuas here in town for a while. I know. Because they're not back until, I think, the first week of August, if I'm not mistaken. August 2nd, Adrian. August 2nd is when they return. So you're 100% correct uh, on that. In fact... um, I think we've got we might even have tickets left for tonight's game, believe it or not. Oh really? Yeah. Nice. Okay. Should we give them away? Yeah, we definitely should. We should give them out to some listeners. All right. Well, um, who wants our seats? That's the best way to put it. These are great seats. Two even comes with a parking pass. My goodness. Those are excellent seats. I love them. Oh, they are. They are they are terrific. I'm with you on that one. So all you gotta do if you want them, what should we do, Adrian? Just have them call in? Yeah, let's have uh, first caller. Give them and, and just give us your email address. That's right. And we'll digitally send them to you. 
In fact, with a parking pass. So, yeah. And these are great seats, by the way. These are our tickets. Section 109, Road D, seats 5 through 8 for tonight. The only caveat is you got to get to the ballpark in the next half hour to an hour so you can get there to watch the game. But uh, I would say that's worth it, getting uh, a four-pack of tickets uh, for the game tonight. That's beautiful. Yeah, if you don't have any plans, give us a call, 505-6009. We'll hook you up. Yeah, just like that. I like it. So um, it's that simple. It is that simple. Anyway, um, just let us know. We already have a line ringing in. That could be the end right there. We could have given it. We could give the tickets away right now. If we do, congratulations. Good for you. And I'll, I'll get you set up uh, here in just a moment. And then we'll get uh, Hags on with us. And we'll do the um, story time segment uh, coming up here in just a little bit. So anyway, everybody's... Uh, Wanting these tickets now, it's, it's all you have to do is just say call in and get them, and you do. There is a really interesting story on SI.com that dropped yesterday. In fact, this is something that hasn't really been getting a lot of traction yet, but Pat Ford did a story yesterday on Power 5 visibility ratings. Have you seen this and how this works with um, with uh, the Power 5 schools? So here's what they did. And I like the desirability ratings from Pat Ford. So he put together a way to rank all 69 Power 5 schools against one another in five areas. And that way you look at the value that they bring to a conference. So you think about what are the criteria. Here you go. You have football ranking. You have academic ranking. You have all sports ranking, football attendance, and broadcast viewership. It is a fascinating way to measure each of the Power 5 schools' value towards their conference. And that was up from yesterday out at uh, SI.com. All right. Uh, I believe uh, not only uh, is Adrian from Central winning the tickets, but he also wants to talk on the show. So, Adrian, go ahead. While you're on with us, I will email these tickets to you. Appreciate you uh, getting in on the show today. Hey, my pleasure, Steve. It's been a while, man. How you doing? I'm good, Adrian. How about you? I can't complain, can't complain. I was uh I was uh talking to Adrian and telling him that I just got back from uh California. We took a little vacation and paired it up with a baseball World Series tournament for my ten year old. Nice. And uh I got to uh catch the Dodgers in LA and the Padres in San Diego. How uh, more importantly than that, how'd your uh, son's ten U team do in the World Series? You know what, man, there's some some tough competition. You know, this was uh, a tournament that we switched to San Diego from Dallas, mm-hmm. and there was actually teams from Hawaii. We played two Hawaii teams out there. Really? And they were not they were not very that great. The Hawaii teams. We played two others from uh, California, Santa Clarita, and then Southern California Aztecs, and uh, they kind of put it. They took it to us, man. We ended up two and three in the tournament, mm. but. Uh, you know, this team, these little guys are, are 10U. They're playing 11U here in El Paso, getting ready to move up to 12U. And uh, 
they got a nice little squad, uh, EPT Owls do, and, and uh, we're, we're going to try and get them ready to do better out there when we go to these World Series because the competition outside of Texas and New Mexico, once you get out to Phoenix and, and California, man, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. No, I know it. I know it. You probably have kids that are throwing harder than anything you guys have ever seen before. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're that's also part of the reason why we're gonna go ahead. And they're also so fundamentally sound. That's the one thing that, to me. That's what separates the the good from the great at that level. Is kids seem like they've played together their whole lives, and 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 they're probably uh, you know they don't make a lot of errors. Everything that gets hit to them, they're able to field. Because to me, it's almost as if fielding is more important at that level than hitting. It is. It is. And you know what? Um, this team, uh, the, uh, my son's team, they, they, they along with uh, two or three other teams, dominate pretty much the league at the sports park and the tournaments in town. Uh, you know, and, and we've gone out even to Midland, Odessa, Hobbs, you know, uh, Pecos, won some tournaments out there, man. But it's a different level when you move up to California. And that's part of the reason why we're moving them up to 12U, just because they they need to get a little bit of a taste of some harder pitching. Yep. So that when we travel with them, they can they can get a better you know get better results just because they they have the talent for it, but the level of competition here locally isn't up to up to snuff yet I for, hear for that uh, type of baseball. I hear you. How is the uh, how are the games you went to? How are the big league games? You know what, man? Um, we went to a Dodger game on a Saturday afternoon, four o'clock, nationally televised game couple weeks ago and uh dodgers opened the game with three home runs in the first inning wow you know i'm a dodger fan so i couldn't be happier with that you know my boys uh we had some nice seats we uh we ended up uh tail end of the game we're down the lower level we walked over by the bullpen my boys both got a baseball from one of the bullpen uh guys uh you know it was a fun time we had a good time dodgers won um and there's nothing like being at dodger stadium man that's the old chavez ravine man that's that's a classic baseball for you. Third oldest baseball in the in the big leagues, and it holds its own against a lot of the newer parks for sure. That's awesome. You know? That's good. Good for you. Good for you. San, Di- San Diego, man. I'll share one with you about San Diego. The game we were at, which they allowed the teams that participated to parade around the outfield like they do here with the Chihuahuas. Yes. But we, we happened to be at the game where uh, C.J. Abrams nailed um, – What's oh yeah, Jerickson Profar, the collision. Profar, yes. Oh. oh my God, Steve. I know. I thought I he mean, was dead. To see I know. That in person, that was. I, that's probably one of the worst I've ever seen on a baseball field. It, it was. I mean, the guy, and then he stumbles after he gets up. You yep. know, uh, yep. that was kind of scary. It was pretty scary. You know, for the kid. You know, and then they show the replays, and and the kids are watching, but. You know, it's it's one of those things that you know it happens, man. I mean, you don't you don't think of injuries like that in baseball because it's so uh, it's so few and far between when you see something like that, man. But but uh, I'm just glad to hear that. Yeah, I think he had a concussion and and he'll end up being okay. But that was a scary collision, man. It was. It was. I'm with you on that one. Well. Happy you had fun, man. Enjoy the baseball game in the next 20 minutes. Get yourself out there, and tickets and parking are on. You should have them in your email already when you hang up the phone. Fantastic, Steve, man. I'm going to reach out to you for something else. Uh, we got a 5K going on for the El Paso Center for Children that I'm coordinating. I'd love to get on and talk to you a little bit about it next week. Sounds like a winner. Just hit me up off the air, and we'll, we'll go from there. Perfect, man. Thanks. All right, Adrian. Take care of yourself. Enjoy the game.
Love and past as we continue here on Sports Talk. Hags will be joining us in just a little bit uh, for story time. In fact, uh, no Charlie today, so we'll break in just a few and, and give Hags a little more time. Did you see the uh, Pat Ford article, Adrian, about conference uh, desirability ratings for oh, all the Power 5 schools? I love this article that Forty writes every year. I haven't checked it, this out yet. I Last year when you wrote this one, I, I remembered it, it looked really grim for all the teams at a conference USA. So, oh, no, uh, this is only Power 5. Oh, this is – okay, okay. So the, he only did uh, Power 5. Here. 69 he include, schools. He did not include the group of five. No, he didn't. Okay, that's he interesting. He just talked about desirability. Who, who's in the top three? I need to go look at this right now. Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame. Wow. I, that's interesting that Bama's not there because Bama has a good basketball Bama's team. Bama's 10. Okay, okay. Where's Texas, USC? Texas is four. Okay. Georgia's five, Florida's six, Wisconsin seven, Oklahoma eight, Wisconsin USC. Wisconsin seven. Wow. Wisconsin seven. Uh, and then you got USC uh, nine, Alabama ten. Okay, okay. It kind of makes sense. Who's in the bottom ten? Bottom ten? Let's see. Here we go. Syracuse to 60, followed by Arizona, Boston College, Vanderbilt, Washington State, Rutgers, Cincinnati, Oregon State, Kansas, and Houston. I'm actually pretty shocked to see that Kansas and uh, Arizona are both in that mix, knowing that they do both those schools have success when it comes to basketball, although maybe you could equate some of the uh, FBI probe scandals that both those teams are facing as to maybe dings on, on both their resumes. So when you deal with it, you got to go um, football, academics, all sports, attendance, viewership. Yeah, okay, okay, I got you. So viewership there is probably pretty down. Uh, same with academics, I would I would guess. Yeah, viewership is near the bottom. Um, you're right about that. And then also ac- attendance is near the bottom. Wow. Okay. They okay. don't have a huge. They don't have a huge stadium at U of A. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Wow, that's real interesting that they're in the bottom though. I, you would expect that kind of school, that kind of caliber, to be higher on that. But hey, I, I guess they've let things slip over there. I think they have too. All right, we'll come back with Hags and story time. It's next. Get you ready for the weekend here on 600 ESPN El Paso.